The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell. Two men recline comfortably on the deck of a yacht bound for Brazil. The vessel's passengers are middle-aged, tan and fit. Whitney, the younger of the two friends, addresses Sanger Rainsford, an acclaimed big game hunter. Now, somewhere off to the right is a mysterious island. Got a name? The old charts call it Ship Trap Island. Superstitious sailors have a curious dread of the place. Mm. Can't see it. Too dark. <laughs> you can pick off a moose in the bush at a hundred yards, but even you can't see four miles in the Caribbean night. It's thick out there, like black velvet. It'll be light soon. We should have good hunting in Rio. Great sport hunting. The best sport. Agreed. But for us, not the jaguar. We're big game hunters, not philosophers. Who cares? Well, the jaguar does. Bah! They don't understand. I think they understand fear, the fear of death. Uh, be a realist. The world is made up of hunters and the hunted. Luckily, you and I are hunters. You think we've passed Chip Trap Island yet? I hope so. It's got a bad reputation. Cannibals? No. Even cannibals wouldn't live there. <laughs> Our crew's been nervous all day. Huh? Captain's been jumpy. Yes. He said to me, gravely, Sir, that island is pure evil. <laughs> There's poison in the breeze. Now, don't laugh at me, Rainsford, but when he said that, I did feel a sudden chill. Yeah, cr crazy old sailor. He's tainted the whole crew. Maybe. But sometimes I think sailors have a sixth sense. An evil place can broadcast evil vibrations. Real or not, it gives me the creeps. Mm. I'm going to bed. Night, Whitney. I'm going to smoke a pipe on the afterdeck before I turn in. <clears throat> Rainsford's thoughts drifted quickly away as he puffed his tobacco. The drowsiness of the night was on him. The only noise was the propeller gently slicing the waves. It's so dark. I think I could sleep without closing my eyes. Suddenly, the silence was shattered. Rainsford moved quickly towards the yacht's railing. Straining to see the origins of the sound, he stepped up. In his haste, the pipe jostled from his mouth. Automatically, he lunged for it, falling overboard. Help! Rainsford desperately tried to call out, but the salty wake from the speeding boat strangled his voice. Treading in the spray, he watched the yacht quickly recede. He wrestled off his jacket and shoes and swam in the direction of the shots. As he surged forward, Whitney's words echoed in his mind. Shiprap Island. Poison in the breeze. Evil vibrations. Bah! Poppycock! Suddenly, a screaming sound pierced the air. A terrified animal in anguish. Energized, the swimmer doubled his pace. The howling was halted by a sharp report. Pistol shot. Ten minutes of swimming concluded with a new sound. The crash of waves on a beach. He dragged himself from the water and collapsed on the rocky sand. A deep sleep overtook him.
and hours passed before the exhausted survivor stirred. <coughs> Jungle. But where there are gunshots, there are men. Where there are men, there is food. But what kind of men in a place like this? Rainsford surveyed the tangled thicket. He struggled forward carefully and encountered a patch of crushed weeds, stained crimson. Blood. A glittering object caught his eye. An empty cartridge, uh, 22. Rainsford surveyed the scene again, noting the trampled underbrush. That's odd. It must have been a large animal, but the hunter had the nerve to tackle it with a light gun? I suppose the first shots were when the hunter flushed his prey to chase. The last shots were when he tailed it here and, and finished it. He spied the footprints of boots pointing forward. He eagerly followed them, his hunger only exceeded by his curiosity. He walked for a mile, then saw lights ahead. A village? Rainsford was wrong. The many lights were one enormous building. His eyes made out the outlines of a palatial chateau set on a high bluff. A castle? <laughs> no, it must be a mirage. It's not a mirage. Moving forward, Rainsford acknowledged that the tall iron gate was real. The stone steps were real. The massive door with a gargoyle knocker was real. Yet above it all hung an air of myth and illusion. He lifted and dropped the knocker. Hello? Anyone home? The door sprang open, and the visitor squinted as glaring gold light poured out. Rainsford's dilated eyes settled on the largest man he'd ever seen, a black-bearded brute. The giant held a long-barreled revolver, pointing straight at Rainsford's heart. The most dangerous game is one of the most popular short stories of all time. And even if you haven't read it before, there's been so many movies and books and adaptations of it, you've probably heard it. The next couple weeks, we're going to be going through a series called The Most Dangerous Game. Rainsford thinks he's coming to an island to hunt. But as he arrives, there's a mystery around it, this ship-trapped island. And all of a sudden, he realizes he may not be uh, coming to an island where the animals are in danger. He's wondering if he might be in danger. Have you ever felt like you're in danger? Uh, kind of like we, we act differently, we live differently when we think we're in danger, right? Whether it's perceived fear or real fear, when you think you might be in danger, boom, all your, your, your sensitivities are suddenly heightened. You're looking around, you're checking things. You're hearing every single sound, smells. All of a sudden your fight or flight kicks on. Something happens when you think you might be in danger. You live differently. You don't coast through life. You're like careful. You're wiser. You're protecting what matters when you think you're in danger. That's what we're going to find, that there's a way to live life that allows you to live wiser, smarter, and without any apathy <laughs> when you're suddenly awakened to the idea that you may be on the hunt.
I had the opportunity a couple years ago to go to Africa. When I did, I arrived in that village and we got the opportunity to do some balloon animals and magic for the kids in the village. And then now uh, I, I was teaching the teachers how to go through Fast Track Bible, which is a series we did several years ago that taught people how to make simple drawings to go through the Bible. Well, after several days of this, we had the opportunity to go on a safari. And I had never been on a safari before. It was incredible. We're in a crater that's a 100 miles in diameter, and there are animals everywhere. In fact, as we come up over the ridge in our little truck, it is like a scene from The Lion King. There are probably, I don't know, 2,000 animals within 50-yard radius. It's like somebody said, cue the birds, and they came over. These giant rocks in the water turn out not to be rocks at all. They're hippos and wildebeests and animals and just everywhere. Just a beautiful scene. And as we leave the scene, we start making our way down. And as we make our way over, all of a sudden the truck stops. And I can see a lion walking directly at us. Now, we're in the truck, but the truck has a pop-up top. Like it wouldn't take anything for a lion to jump in and come through the top. And all of a sudden, I'm heightened. There is a lion coming at us. In fact, the lion walks over and it's literally laying down just outside the glass door. I can see it. And I'm looking around like I'm nervous. The driver doesn't seem nervous. Like it will take nothing for that lion to jump from there to there. I am suddenly approaching life very differently. I'm not just laughing all the time. I'm like, am I in danger? Do I need to be careful? Who around here can I outrun? <laughs> or, or do I need to protect my wife, right? The Bible's gonna describe a reality, a reality of life. Life can be fun, life can be enjoyed, but we would approach it a little bit differently if we knew there was a prowling lion trying to find us, right? If I told you today, that when you leave today, you know, the Tiger King escaped from jail and he had a bunch of lions and one of those lions got loose in your town and you might, the minute you step out your door, not just kind of casually walk to your car, if you think there might be a lion loose. You see, that's the principle we're gonna look at. We approach life differently if we know it's a dangerous game. And there are dangerous aspects to life that the Bible teaches us we can approach and overcome if we take three specific approaches to life. Recognizing and not being naive that there's times that people can try and betray you, that evil's out to get you. And if you will approach it that way, you can outsmart and outlast the game because you didn't walk into it naively. Now the first approach I wanna look at is what does it look like to live strategically? To live strategically as if evil wants to devour you. Now that might sound depressing, but actually it helps you from dulling your senses, kind of coasting through life. If you knew that evil was trying to hunt you, your weaknesses were trying to find you, you might go through life a little bit differently. And that's what Peter, a friend of Jesus, is writing to followers of Jesus in his day on how to live the most successful type of life by living strategically as if evil was trying to devour you. Here's how he says it. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Now we'll get into the devil in just a second. But before we get into what, something's trying to devour you and you need to be sober, which means to be in control of your thoughts and you need to be vigilant, which means remain awake. You ever notice that sometimes like the commuter mode on your way to work, you kind of like go through life and you make the turn and suddenly you're at work. You're not really fully awake. And suddenly somebody slams on the brakes in front of you. Whoa, you're awake. What's going on? All of a sudden you're heightened. Peter says, I don't want you to coast through life. I want you to know that you're possibly in danger. And so your weaknesses, your weak spots, there's something trying to devour you. So make sure you're alert. You're taking control of your thoughts as you're going through life. In fact, you may not believe in the devil. The Bible in the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about the devil And that might be weird. It might be kind of kooky or spooky to talk about the devil. The word devil means the adversary or specifically the deceiver. So think of it as lies or the source of evil. Just as God is the personification of good, the devil is the absence of good and a personification of evil. But in this case, Peter kind of likens him to a prowling lion seeking to devour you. And if you look at how lions hunt, often it's the old lion that's set on one side of the field. And as the little deer comes by, doink, 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 the lion, usually an older lion who can't hunt anymore, he will look up, he'll see the deer and he'll be like, roar! And that roar will so frighten the deer He perks up, looks around, hears the lion, and all of a sudden runs the opposite direction. Now this is exactly what the lioness has planned for. Because though the big lion roars, the deer run the opposite direction where there's four or five lionesses in the tall grass waiting to devour them. See, the reason we need to take our thoughts and be in control of our thoughts is because often when we get scared by something, we run in another direction. We run directly into danger. So stay awake. Take control of your thoughts as you approach life, lest evil devour you. Now the idea he's getting at here is the idea that you don't want to have dulled senses. Don't dull your senses toward life. If you knew that your weaknesses and evil were trying to devour you, you would stay alert. What are your unique weak spots? Is it your temper? Is it lust? Is it fudging a story or lying? What if instead of letting those things slide, you began to become heightened to them? I remember when I went through a a challenging time, it was a time of depression in my life, and I've never been one to really suffer with depression. But this was a very challenging time for me. Now on the outside, I looked like I was doing great. I was in the top 10 of my class. Things were incredibly well. I was getting all kinds of awards. Boy, at night, I could feel the the darkness coming in around the bed at night. Sometimes it felt like fear. Sometimes it felt like depression. Sometimes it felt like just the air was thick. I began reading a book called The Adversary, all about kind of the idea that evil might be hunting you and how to overcome it. And I remember in the middle of that one evening, I'd been reading this book about how to overcome. And my weakness at that stage in my life was fear and depression. And one night as the the room kind of felt darker than normal, I remember crying out loud, help me, Jesus. And all of a sudden, the best way I can describe it is like the the air got thinner. uh, The darkness got lighter. It was like the room didn't weigh so much. 
and I started some new patterns. I decided I don't want this to happen again. I started going to church not because I had to or you're supposed to, because I needed new tools in my tool belt because something was hunting me. Something was trying to destroy me. And I started going on Wednesdays and Sundays because I needed to hear a promise from God, a a tool from God. I began to build some deeper friendships with people who were farther along spiritually than I was. And I'm telling you, that began to kind of approach a life differently. I didn't have dulled senses. I was awake to the reality that I was in danger and I wanted to overcome. And those friendships became meaningful in my life. They become some of the most significant ways I was able to progress and find more joy and not kind of naively let the weaknesses around me take me down. Maybe you're going through a similar thing. Maybe your weakness isn't depression or isn't fear. Maybe it truly is a, a soft spot in your, in your anger that you can just feel times that you get out of control and say things that you know you shouldn't have said. What would it look like to stay vigilant to make sure that 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 spot, if that weak spot of your life was trying to devour you, do you have people in your life to help surround you, to show you where maybe it's trying to take you in a direction you don't want to go? In fact, I don't know if you've signed up for Authentic Manhood, but we started a couple weeks ago here in April with, uh, with Ken Kington. And it's a great opportunity for to really talk about fatherhood and what it looks like to, to walk through life strategically as a dad, as a husband. You can find information about that on our website, but maybe you're interested in having some of that community, getting into the Bible for the first time, checking it out. Not sure if I believe the whole thing, but boy, I'd like to live more strategically because I want to have the best kind of life and not naively allow my weaknesses to hunt me down. What's our second approach? The second thing we do is not just live strategically, like you know your weaknesses, live strategically as if they're trying to take you down. But secondly, we need to resist personalizing pain and difficulty. What does that mean, to personalize pain? Well, look how Peter says it, and I'll explain it. Resist him, the source of evil, steadfast in the faith. We'll come back to that word steadfast. Knowing something, something you need to know when you go through life. Knowing that the same sufferings, the same challenges, same difficulties are experienced by your brotherhood. You're not the only one going through this kind of pain. But may Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, it's about suffering, it's about pain, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now what's he saying here? Well, he says resist personalizing pain. When you personalize pain, you say something like, man, I'm the only one going through this. Boy, this isn't fair. Sometimes it sounds like the voice of victimhood, even if you don't consider yourself a victim. You hear this little Eeyore inside you, poor me. Or maybe it sounds a little bit like Snuffleupagus. Well, bird, I uh, don't think we should have to go through this. But if you don't consider yourself a victim, it probably comes in the form of anger. I shouldn't have to put up with this. This is ridiculous. You start to blame God. It's not just that bad stuff happens to everybody. It's I'm angry at the universe or angry at God that I have to go through this. I don't deserve this. I shouldn't have to put up with this. The universe is mad at me. There's a black cloud over my head. You personalize pain. 
as if the universe or God is out to get you. And that becomes the very bait that evil uses to take you down. Because now you're not just going through difficulty, you've made God the enemy. He's the one who's caused this. Now, the reason he says resist that idea and be steadfast in the faith is because really the things you're going through, there's other people going through the same stuff. There's other people, it's difficult, but they've been going through cancer. There's other people whose partners have stabbed them in the back. There's other people, and when you resist the idea to personalize pain as if you know the universe is attacking you, instead you say, God, I don't like this, but I'm gonna trust that you're with me and instead of personalizing the pain, I wanna ask you, use the pain to perfect, mature me, to establish me, to strengthen me, and settle me. I was talking to a woman recently who had been through a divorce. I talked to her about three years ago when she went through this. And as with all divorces, it stab you in the back, you know, knife in your chest, yank out, oh my goodness, what happened? Every time I talked to her on the phone, she was bitter, understandably, angry at her husband and at God, embarrassed, humiliated, and just caught in this cycle, caught in this cycle of anger and frustration. And I just kept pointing her back to being steadfast, to chasing God down, letting God heal her, letting God establish her, letting God perfect her. I just talked to her a couple weeks ago. It's been three years, and she was just filled with joy. She said, Chad, I can't tell you what God's been doing in my life. I am feeling so much more joy. I've been reading books, kind of dealing with some of my own junk. I'm finding that some of the things that led to that divorce were my fault. Some of the things were ways in which my weaknesses were used against me. God is growing me. And I was just shocked at at how much joy she had. Same bad circumstances from the past, but so aware of what God was doing in her life. And that's what I want for you, that your pain doesn't make you more and more bitter, but your pain can make you better as you remain steadfast. And that word steadfast is interesting. He says, resist him, be steadfast in the faith. Now, what does steadfast mean? Well, the word steadfast comes from a Greek word, stereo. It's where we get the word stereo. It's like there's a path that leads to the good stuff. And stereos don't turn too far to the left. There's lions over there. And, and don't go too far to the right. There's lions over there. Almost like to be steadfast is to have the music playing on both sides to say, stay here. Even when you go through suffering and pain and difficulty. Over here is, poor me. Over here it's, I shouldn't have to put up with this. But the word steadfast in Greek literally means not to be softened. You can be softened by anger and fall into a pit. You can be softened by victimhood and be consumed by a lion. So be steadfast, be vigilant. Resist the temptation to personalize pain and rather say, God, I don't like this, but I'm gonna resist personalizing pain and trust you to perfect me, to strengthen me, and to establish me and grow me through this experience. But there's a third approach. The third thing we do to be successful in this dangerous game is to beware the inner ego trap. Peter goes on to say, if you're gonna resist this prowling lion who's trying to scare you into being destroyed or devoured, 
all of you be submissive. The word submission means to be subordinate to the mission. Be submissive to one another. Don't think, yeah, I shouldn't have to put up with this my wife. I can't believe the demands my husband are making. I can't believe my boss wants me to do this. No, adapt to one another. And be clothed with humility. Part of, if you listen to that Eeyore voice or that anger voice from before, it's really, I shouldn't have to put up with this. It's really ego who's driving your anger or driving your victimhood. So be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So what's he saying there? He's saying that when you let pride and arrogance and my way or the highway kind of attitudes control your life, and you know this, you've seen this in other people's life, and you might say, in general, I don't struggle with that. In most areas, maybe. But I've got a few areas that it pops up. The ego, the me first, the better do it my way. So kind of heighten your senses to those specific areas. It may not apply to you in all areas, but are there certain areas that there's not as much teachability or not as much humility? And what is ego anyway? I mean, like, how, how would I even know if I struggle with it, the inner trap of ego that you're talking about, Chad? Well, here's a couple statements to maybe test yourself on what ego sounds like or what that ego trap looks like. Do you become irritated when you're corrected? Of course, who doesn't? Wise people want wisdom so they can grow. Foolish people or people who have a big ego can't be corrected. And because they can't be corrected, they don't grow because they're not open to feedback. This might be an area that evil could devour you because you haven't clothed yourself in humility. They will not admit their mistakes. There's areas of ego that refuse to take counsel from other people. They won't learn from other people. Everything's a competition. Everything is about winning. Everything's about me first. I don't care if, if I win as long as you lose. That's ego. Pride doesn't just want more. They want more than somebody else. Now listen, I bet you in general you're saying, Chad, I know some people like that. I know some people need to hear this sermon. I'm going to send this link on to somebody. But this in general isn't me, and that's probably true. But I bet there's a few spots, because I know there isn't me, a few topics, a few relationships, that that ego trap is set. And I want to carefully clothe myself with humility so pride doesn't come before destruction because I've thought I'm above the rules or it would never happen to me or it's not a big deal and I go into commuter mode through life rather than avoiding the inner trap of ego that has taken literally hundreds and thousands of people in history down before you. I think that's why this ancient wisdom is so helpful. I don't think we always realize that the Bible's saying, hey, this has happened for centuries. People didn't think ego would take them down. There is a whole line of people behind you that have fallen trapped to this. And if you could learn these lessons, it will save you a lot of pain. In fact, it's interesting as a church, you know, we create environments for our equipping service and our exploring service where people can come and explore their faith. And so about a year ago, I was going out the, the main doors here 
and we came to our hearth room. One of our elders was there talking to a couple who'd been coming for about a year. They talked about how the Bible and being around the Bible and studying the Bible and learning how to pray was transforming their relationship. And she had mentioned the joy she was experiencing, the way in which the two of them were not at, at, at odds as often, but really adapting to each other. They almost described it like a, a sweet new spirit in their marriage. And their marriage was good before, but it's gotten even better. And so Mike, a friend of mine, one of our leaders of the church, turned to the husband and said, well, where do you see yourself um, being better or improving because of this? He said, well, you know, it's almost like I'm, I'm more open to deferring to someone else. I'm more interested in being more generous than I used to be in different areas. I just find myself filled with more peace and joy during the day. So then Mike turned to his wife and said, well, where have you noticed changes in him? To which she paused for a second. She says, well, I guess if I could sum it up, it's no longer all about him. Well, that could be a moment for a fight. He looked at her and went, you know, that's a good way to say it. Wow, that would have caused a fight a couple years ago. He was beginning to realize that a lot of the ways he'd negotiated his relationship had been about his needs, his career, his wants and desires. He was becoming more humble, and the marriage was prospering because of it. And they said that's because of what they learned about Jesus, that God of the universe came and humbled himself on earth. Speaking of the God of the universe, the guy who's writing this letter that we're reading, this manual for the hunting guide, is a guy named Peter, who's good friends with Jesus. And Jesus told his disciples that right before he started three years of teaching, he went face to face with the source of evil. Now again, the idea of the concept of the devil might be spooky or kooky to you, so just stay with me. But the Bible says there is a real devil, and that he did, the source of evil, came to try and take Jesus down. And the source of evil's taken down a lot of leaders through history. And he tries to get Jesus to prove it, prove you're really God. You know, turn these rocks into bread or, or prove you're really God. Throw yourself off the, the top of this thing and, and God will save you. Or, or here, bow down to me. Here's all the kingdoms of the world. And he overcame evil. Now listen, I, I can't prove to you scientifically and philosophically that, that there's a source of evil. But there is some scientific evidence for that story that Jesus told his disciples. See, at the temple... There's actually, was a bigger, taller section here in its time that had the cornerstone where Jesus said the devil brought him and told him to throw himself off it. Like, okay, well, it sounds like a made-up story. The devil in his pajamas and his pitchforks talking to Jesus. Well, actually, when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, they pushed over all those gigantic bricks. And I mean gigantic, like 25 tons, 6 foot by 5 foot by 30 foot bricks. And that rubble is all sitting there today, and you can walk past it. Just the size of these bricks compared to like a, a person. This is a person right here. And when I walked by this section, there's a stamp on this rock right here marking it as the cornerstone, or the capstone, rather. This was the capstone at the top of the temple, where Jesus said he stood and faced evil. Instead of giving in the need to prove himself, that's ego, right? I gotta prove who I am. Jesus didn't have to prove anything. He said, it is written that you should not tempt the Lord your God. I'm not gonna tempt him. I know who I am. 
I don't need to prove anything to myself, and I don't need to prove anything to you. And the writer of these biographies was saying, Jesus took on the very source of evil and overcame it. And you can trust him to give you the power to overcome evil wherever you're at as well. So how about for you and I? How do we approach this dangerous game? Well, I think Peter's pretty clear on how we do it and what's successful. He says you resist evil by pursuing what is good. More than that, to pursue what is good is really to pursue after God. First Peter chapter five, he says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, be sober and vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So it's like the way you resist evil is by persisting or pursuing after God. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So here's the question. Whether you believe in God or the devil, wouldn't you want to live in such a way strategically that if you were being hunted by your weaknesses, you could overcome? And wouldn't you want to know that if there's a God who has power and might and wisdom that you could have access to to navigate life, that he's offering you the best kind of life that you could learn from all the mistakes of everyone in the past, right? I would want that. In fact, there's a college professor by the name of Pascal, and he believed in Jesus, God, and the Bible as a way to navigate and overcome evil. But his college professors, his buddies, would never even consider the evidence. And so he proposed what was called Pascal's wager. He said, listen, if I'm right, and it turns out that at the end of time, uh, I follow this kind of lifestyle, hey, I get heaven and future rewards for it, right? It's all reward. If I'm wrong, and I live consistent with this book, okay, then nothing else happens, right? I end up in the same place as there is no eternity, and I'm just kind of dead. He said, but guys, if you're right and you live consistently with there is no God, we both end up in the same place. But if you're wrong, that there is a God and there is a Bible and there is a Jesus and there is good and evil and you reject it and don't live consistent with it, there's huge downsides. So Pascal's wager is saying, let's at least consider this thing. That's what he was saying to his friends. And I want to ask you the same thing. Take Pascal's wager. Whether you believe in this or not, I would just suggest to you that if you would pursue good and even entertain the idea that it's not just pursuing good because everything good comes from God, I want to pursue God. If you take care of pursuing God, it ends up taking care of evil. What do I mean? Did you know evil is really the absence of good? And you can't progress by trying to stop something. Think of it this way. I'm not going to stop being apathetic or bitter. Right? I could do that. I'm going to stop being apathetic or bitter. But even better is I want to pursue joy. I want to pursue love. I could say to myself, I need to stop being depressed or stop being so critical. All right. But it's hard to build a life on stopping something. What if instead of stopping being critical and stop being so depressed, I say I'm going to pursue joy in this moment. God, I want the joy of living the best kind of life. What about, I want to stop worrying and stop being so anxious. 
Instead of saying, God, I want to pursue peace. I want to today feel what it's like to rest in peace. Because to be near God is to be near the source of peace. See, you resist evil by pursuing good. I'll give you another one. I want to stop losing my temper. If I could just stop losing my temper and stop giving into that habit or stop being mean or harsh. Yeah, but then all day long you're thinking about the thing you're trying not to do. Being harsh, being critical, losing your temper. How about instead, you say, God, I want to pursue you. I want to pursue your kindness. I want to pursue self-control. I want to be more like you. So God wants to be a guiding light in life for us. That when we pursue him, we don't have to worry about evil. Evil is just the absence of good anyway. So would you take a journey with us the next couple weeks and learning how to pursue God and by being close to God, you will end up resisting whatever evil is trying to take you down. That God would be your guiding light. Let me pray for you. Father, will you guide us? Will you guide us to be open to our own weaknesses? Open to the possibility that evil's trying to devour us and to find you as our source of love, joy, peace, kindness, and self-control, our ultimate guiding light. Amen.